Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Toby. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling visionary and record-breaking and (laughs) super dramatic, actually, because today we are going behind the scenes of a part of the art world that you and I aren't as familiar with, which is why this is so thrilling, because today we are speaking to the head of Christie's New York, and it's on the eve of one of the most important auctions pretty much to ever take place, which is why I use the word dramatic. Mm. It's definitely the most expensive collection, I think, ever to come to auction, and it's actually the collection of a visionary man uh, called Paul Allen, known as Paul to his friends. I'm only saying that because I actually (laughs) sat two seats down from him in 2002 at the uh, Paramount Theatre in Seattle for a Prince concert because my friend Candy Dulfer was his saxophonist. And somebody kept saying to me, the Microsoft co-founder with Bill Gates, Paul Allen, is literally sat two seats from you. And um, it was the most surreal experience to sort of see him and meet him at that event. So I actually have that personal connection to Paul, but he sadly passed away a few years ago. And during his life, he wasn't only a complete, incredible mind, um, somebody that obviously founded the Microsoft Corporation and pretty much changed all of our lives forever because of all the developments he did in Silicon Valley and in Seattle. But he was also a philanthropist, a collector, and he took art collecting really seriously and he actually said this amazing quote which was I believe that good art helps us see the world around us a little differently it gives us fresh perspectives even sometimes a little stronger sense of purpose and I love this idea that art can give us purpose and you know drive things forward particularly coming from such a scientific mind as Paul Yeah, so we're very excited to explore his collection and see all of these incredible works. There's even a Botticelli in there and some extraordinary works by women artists as well, some of my heroes. So I'm really looking forward to getting in depth with our guest today. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art all the way from Christie's New York, the chairman of 20th and 21st century art, Alex, Alex Rotter. Rotter. Hi, Alex. Hi, Alex. Hi, guys. I know it's a handful. 2021. I say 2021, so I don't have to say 2021st. It's a little bit yeah, too much. 2021, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> can, you, can you say chairman of post-war and contemporary art? Is that, is that a cleaner way of saying it? You can say whatever you want. Honestly, like people, people come up with, with names. I basically am in charge of the 20th century. So anything that falls into these categories is is kind of me and my team, more my team than me. I'm just sitting here. Um, it sounds so epic when you say that. You're in charge of the 20th century. I right, right, right. You know, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a very small segmentation of it. <laughs> so we find you in uh, New York right now. But just to have a bit of history on you, Alex. So we just said that you're the chairman of post Contemporary Art in New York City at Christie's. But you were raised in Austria. I was raised in Australia. The surname Rotter, is that an Austrian, well-known Austrian name like Smith or Jones? Yeah, it's a pretty common, it's a pretty common name in Austria. I know in England it's a little bit of a different name, but in Austria it's a pretty common name. Okay. And you your family were all art dealers, correct? My, well, not all of them, but my grandfather was an art dealer and my mom was an art dealer, is an art dealer. 
But you must have had a, a an early understanding of of collectors then, because the 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 relationship between a, an art dealer and a collector is very important. And obviously, you work for for the international team finding collectors internationally for you know everything that's being sold through Christie's. What that that understanding of what a collector is as someone very young, how did that affect your way of seeing kind of the art market as well? Well, look, there's if you if you there's art history, there's the art market. I would hope that every art market person has also an art history background or 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 an art historical look. But if you're in the art market, you look at it in as a development of what's desirable in the market. Therefore, what you just said, Russell, the collector is very important and the understanding of it. I think also that the general understanding of what collecting is. You know, if you have no passion yourself for collecting anything and could be stamps or buttons or pants or paintings, um, this this idea of having and gathering and how you think as a collector, I have this sneaker, what happens to my collection if I buy this sneaker? Like really in a, in a simple understanding. So if you have this from a young from young on, it's much easier to get the psychology just because it's driving me too. I, you know, I sell as a collector myself, whatever, you know, whatever you collect. So you need to have a passion for it. There are certain people that will never get the bug, but if you get the bug and you understand it and you find people that work with you and enhance your passion, because it's all about desire and passion, um, that, you know, that can get, then can get things going. Do you think most people within Christie's who you work with, do you, do you think they all, they all fundamentally have the collector drive to begin with? I would think so. I would think so. I mean, look, everyone that stays in the auction business for, for, for longer than a couple of years, a couple of months, and is ends, ends up in, 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 with a career needs to have a passion for this. And if, if you have the passion and you're at the source, and don't forget, if you work in the art market, there's always a price tag associated, which is very difficult sometimes to understand, but it's always price relation. So truthfully, when I was 13, I was walking through museums looking at the paintings, but also back then already imagining imaginary price tags on it. So that comes with it. It's not the nicest thing, but it's the truth. You know, you see, you see value plays, in how it value plays immediately into your equation. Mm. And you've actually had um, a record-breaking career already, like outside of this um, forthcoming auction, because you were involved, I think, when you first joined Christie's in one of the sort of highest auction bids ever. Um, can you talk us through that a bit? Because I, I think it was like 400 million. <laughs> yeah, um, it, was, it was 400 million. <laughs> uh, with Juice, it was <laughs> You say that reluctantly. Million, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's 400 million, yeah. Uh, no, it was, that, was, that was a big deal. That is still the biggest deal. And, you know, of course, I'm, I'm very proud of this moment. Uh, mm. But the truth is, you know, it's, it's, it's not me who bought it. Uh, I just facilitated it. Mm-hmm. It was me with the like that was part of the idea and part of the setup. So that's the part that was exciting. Uh, we included a Da Vinci back then in the 20th century sale. So I needed to do it on my territory. But um, Da Vinci was not a 20th century artist. Although I do think his relevance for today is still almost as significant as if he lived in the 20th century, if you think about it really. But yes, so that was that was that that, that was one of the one of the 
one of the achievements is to sell the highest painting ever to come at auction. And I think it will be a while until this record for a single painting is broken. Just in May, um, I, I, I doubled down and sold the Marilyn for almost $200 million, which was the yes, most expensive Whoa. 20th century uh, painting and the most expensive American painting. So I'm trying to break all these records. No, I'm not. I'm just trying to get great art. And I'm excited about it. I'm passionate about it. And I put everything behind it because I believe in it. I believe that art is the only thing that remains at yeah. the end of the day. So if you yeah. want to significantly do something, buy a great work of art. And to give our listeners a, a clear indication of what's happening, from the beginning of November, I think this collection will go on display. Is that correct? In New York. And the auction itself will be over the 9th and 10th of November. And there's more than 150 masterpieces. And I really mean masterpieces because I, I went through the catalogue and it's just extraordinary, the level, um, the precision of his collecting and and the really... Um, outward looking you know very futuristic in a way all of these artists were really pushing things forward and it, it fascinates me the selection that that he made being such a pioneer himself he was really choosing artists that 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 changed our our understanding of the world around us and um i found it really fascinating as well his dedication to women artists at a time when a lot of other collectors were predominantly collecting male artists and i know that at christie's um yourselves in in london um your your partner gallery in london uh, auction house in London. Um, Tracy Emin's painting sold um, during Freeze Week for a record for her career, and it, it went, I think, with fees to like 2.3 million. Um, can you speak a bit about uh, the inequality between male artists and women artists, and then how artists like Georgia O'Keeffe and some of the ones in this auction really are leading the way on the secondary market now? So, first of all, the Tracy Emin painting in London was an awesome painting. Yeah. That was fantastic. <laughs> it had so much raw energy and it was great. It was just a great work of art. And, and I think Tracy is an artist that deserved this price also, if she cares or not, but like from a market perspective. Um, um, and I love, I live with my Tracy Emin at home. I love my Tracy Emin. So like, I was what do very, you have? <laughs> I have a red, white and fucking blue, the neon that speaks oh, to me very amazing. much as, a, as an import, so to speak. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, um, she's at the top of her game right now. Incredible. Absolutely. Mm. And uh, but <clears throat> but anyway, look, um, I think Paul Allen, I'm, I'm going to go broad a little bit and you then cut me down if you want to go specifically into this. Yeah, but yeah. the way the way he collected, I think, Robert, you said something that is very crucial and that is that is that we say casually, but you have to really digest this. And again, you said it twice, so I'm re rephrasing what you said, but I related to the art. It's like this guy, whoever he was on a personal level, but what he's done to us, and we say these people influenced us, these people influenced us, and Prince influenced us, and you too influenced us, but Paul Allen changed our daily lives. Like just to be on video with you without Paul Allen, we probably would not be communicating like this. <laughs> yeah. The entire way of how our society functions is, it would function in a different way, but the way it functions now is based on Paul Allen and Bill Gates at the end of the day uh, with influences in there. So for this guy to have a vision and have a passion for collecting. And he collected lots of things. He was well known. He was the biggest collector of electric guitars, for instance. And he liked, you know, World War II warplanes. And like, but from the art perspective, 
he did something that I really haven't encountered. And obviously, you need to be very, very wealthy to do this. <laughs> yeah. uh, but there's, there's plenty of wealthy people who didn't do it. So to follow your passion and not really care what anyone says, because I'm telling you, there is no collection that spans from Botticelli to Lucian Freud at this level. It doesn't exist. There are collections that take 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, and are, have amazing paintings and are maybe better in their, in, in their segmentation. But to have a broad stroke collection like this, so really follow what you like, because people tend to, when you're collecting things, you focus, there are stamp collectors, there are sneakers, you focus on a specific thing because that's what, that's what your brain is capable of doing. You can't be great at everything, but there are geniuses in our world, and he definitely was one of them in his field, and he translated that. And that's so fascinating when you saw there is, you know, stylistically, you can pinpoint a couple of things that he liked, and I can make, I can make comparisons, one painting to this, I can see a parallel here, but there are certain things in his collection where I don't see any parallel and has a completely different vision. And the little that I knew um, um, when he was still around, when he came to the auction houses or to galleries, he just went for what, in what he wanted to. He wasn't going through a list like, this is what you have to do, this is what you do. It was really his passion. So to come to your question of, therefore, he also didn't, didn't feel like from a gender specific, he didn't think that way, yeah. but he saw, obviously he was very deep. He's very deep. I think that's what you're referencing the Georgia O'Keeffe's. He has one of the great collections of Georgia O'Keeffe's who is one of the greatest artists of the 20th century and a very, you know, a very strong statement also for a male collector to have these paintings on your wall. Agreed, so that's yeah. gutsy. But again, this was his vision. He saw what he saw. He wanted to see. It was less of like, I have to do this, but I want to do this. And, you know, when I look at the, when I think about the female artists in the collection, obviously, you know, it was, it was easier uh, because of, of society reasons in the, in the second half of the 20th century than the first half. We have very little to look on. Uh, before then, but between George O'Keefe, who was the standout figure, and then later Agnes Martin is in his collection, Louis Bourgeois. So amazing, um, amazing women artists that had, but that were artists, not because they were women, that we're looking at them because they were great artists. And um, he, again, looked at this and, 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 and followed his passion. But it happens to be looking at it now and looking at how we represent and how we think about female artists and how we think about like positioning female artists also on the uh, at least on the same level um, is is you know in a, in a single collection it's harder to Im impact from from my perspective from my colleague's perspective because it's this person's vision but he naturally had this tendency and picked some as we say some amazing. Uh, painting specifically from female artists. Okay, built an incredible collection. I mean, the, again, these are artists that defied limitations. But what's an amazing thing about Paul when I was doing the research is that he was a huge philanthropic character. He's someone that gave away money to so many charities. And the proceeds of this sale are valued at $1 billion potentially. But they're all going to philanthropic causes which is part of his wishes for this sale. So he knew he was 
going to pass. And he approached Christie's, and I'm sure there was other auction houses that were battling for this collection, I'm sure. But he approached you guys and said, look, I want this sale to happen, and I want the money to go to my causes. That's an incredible uh, dying wish, right? I, I think it's an incredible wish. I think I'm I'm very, you know, this has nothing to do with who I am at Christie's or what Christie's. I'm thankful that people like this exist, that, um, you know, that do all their things, that change, that impact our life and society. And that's the way they give back. And I think that's incredible. It's happening more and more. I think that he yet again is a, is inspirational because he's from an older generation but if you look at the very wealthy newer tech generations they're also very generous people i know we like to think you know but philanthropy for this entire new tech generation and the entire society but i think the techies understand it the best way or where it's going to be honest is 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 to give away like you don't need like this is a very different way of living and again it was paul allen who formed this way a generation before because the natural generation is not as big of 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 a donator generation as as he was obviously his partner bill gates is too if you think about what the, what what they're giving away so it's an it's an important part it's <clears throat> it's really a way also for 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 i think for these people to justify what they've done, what they spend, what they've made. It's like, you know, giving it back to society in the things that are important to you. And all of these people know they don't just like give it, like give it to anyone. Like they have specific things that were important. Um, the Paul Allen Foundation goes into all the different passions that he had and follow it and gives money to them. And I think it's a wonderful thing. It is. I looked up philanthropy uh, to find out what it actually means because we hear that word a lot and it's quite a strange word. But it actually comes from the ancient Greek phrase which means to love people and translated today it translates as voluntary giving to promote good. So it's it's an incredible thing and I, we, we had on the Keith Haring Foundation recently and Keith's wishes was that uh, money raised from the image rights of his works going forward go to philanthropic causes and the, and the things that he believes in. It's a, it's an amazing thing to know that beyond the grave you are helping people with what you achieved in your lifetime. I think it's what remains. You know, like this. If you have the if if you have the luxury to do this, I think it's an amazing thing to do and an important thing to you. Mm-hmm. There's, um, so we're talking about his collection then. So I want to I want to go in depth a bit about some of the mm. auction items that are in there. The thing that's really struck out to me is that there are a lot of landscapes which I find very fascinating. There's landscapes, and, and you know this is this is a collection that's spanning over 500 years of artistic innovation. But the landscapes cover things from like Milton Avery, Bruegel, Monet, Hockney, Liechtenstein, George O'Keefe, as we mentioned, Turner. Hopper, Magritte, they, I mean, these are all the big hitters. These are all like art historical canons that change the game. But he he's choosing the landscapes by so many of these artists. What do you think that was and why was he drawn to landscape so much? I think it's really interesting that you say this because um, is it is something that that was one of my first observations when I looked at the sale also. Interesting enough, other people don't see it that way, but I see it just like you. I think there is a, there is a, 
he had a draw to the landscape. Now, what does the draw to the landscape mean? And this is just pure interpretation. This is not him saying it or anyone else saying it. But what landscape offers is, um, is a different perspective than, for instance, just a single person or pure abstraction. The landscape opens up into a diagonal. You know, it's not just mm -hmm. vertical and horizontal. It goes deep. So I see a parallel in those, like almost like when you start drawing and when you try to like draw a three-dimensional, everything turns into a diagonal and pulls to the back in order to create something. I see all those lines coming together in those landscapes. So I am sure, based on nothing, that he saw... Uh, you know, that he saw an underlying grid in those landscapes that pointed to the future. I, I'm, I'm really convinced of it. All these, you find, you, you address those little paths that you see them in many paintings, those winding paths. Yeah. Uh, there's a path in the Botticelli, there's a, paint, there's a path 500 years in the Gerhard Richter landscape that looks the same. It's that winding path that leads you into the future, but it's windy, it's not a straightforward one. I think the landscape really, the landscape is also the thing that, you know, man can influence, but it takes us long time to influence the landscape. So the landscapes has a stability uh, emotionally, a mountain, a river, these are unmovable things. So I think all of this draws into the same, draws from the same. I don't think he went out and said, like, I need landscapes because of that. But he was drawn by that. So, Russell, you, you're absolutely right. I see a consistency there. And um, I, see, I see parallels in, in those paintings that have no parallels. It's interesting, the perspective, I guess, what you're saying about, like, the, the grid work. But for me, it feels like there's such a with the coding and with with the science of what he was working in the landscape is so natural and open and unchanged and been there for millennia and and you're looking out on that 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 there's a freedom in that i guess that isn't so meticulous when it comes to you know his day-to-day -day life that i mean for me i'm terrible at maths and the thought of having to do anything close to what he did just fills me with fear i'd want to run out and be in the middle of a field so i absolutely get it you know, one of the things that I find so striking about this collection is there are loads of artists that I recognize the names of, you know, that I've seen work in museums all over the world, but there's lots of individual works I've never seen before. So for example, the Bridget Riley, um, which is in the part two, the second day sale um, called Arcane is one of my favorite Bridget Riley's I think I've ever seen, and I've never even seen it in real life. And some of the Yayo Kasama works, there's something really interesting about the Agnes Martin pieces, the kind of the more abstract ones where they feel very expansive, very um, kind of like taking art to a new place and highly intelligent art, actually, which I think he also had a sort of natural um, inclination for. Even like the Ed Ruscha works, there's a, a one of the lower priced works, weirdly, it's only three to five thousand um, dollars estimate, which is called um, Partial Truth by Bruce Nauman. I love that work. I think mm -hmm. it's so extraordinarily beautiful, intelligent, thought-provoking. It's just a fact, even just the way it's constructed as an artwork, it's just visually so interesting. So he, he had this real breadth of interest that seems very sort of intellectual in a way. 
Absolutely. It, it was. There were parallels. Like, for instance, in the exhibition, that is, by the way, because you asked before, that just opened in two hours ago, 11 <laughs> o'clock New York time, we opened it. Awesome. Um, so it was a week of installation. But, for instance, I placed the, <clears throat> the Turner landscape, the Turner Venice scene, next to the Agnes Martin, which wow. for me are also desert landscapes. They're obviously minimal mm -hmm. art and seen different ways, yeah. but there's a strange relationship and it goes with you said, like it broadens, it expands. You see the lines here much more. They take, he takes the, the, the mountains are gone and the trees are gone, but the lines of the landscapes are still there. So there's, there's a very interesting play. There's also when you said the pixelation that, uh, you know, th that also is something that is reoccurring in a different way. But like, I do see a parallel between, you know, one of his greatest paintings is the, is the, is the, is the, is the Three Graces of Seurat, which, yes. you know, pointillism. So he took, takes the brush and like, like a madman points, 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 points in order to create. The Van Gogh is similar constructed with like tiny brushstrokes, but also multiples. The Klimt has so many leaves on the floor and so many leaves on the trees, you can't count them. So again, but that leads me directly into like, you know, 20 years later and one of the last works he said, he bought a spot painting with tiny spots by Damien Hirst. So like you mm. don't think there is a parallel. It's absolutely there. It comes, there's obviously something that he sees in, the, in, 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 in certain works and he goes and pursues, but in a funny way, they all relate to each other or you can make parallels to, between, between those works. How do you, you know, the sale's going over two days and that's obviously because there's so many lots, but how do you curate a sale like this when you have so many incredible works? For some, you know, if you put works at the beginning of a sale, there's always the kind of tradition of the hierarchy of those being the most important works to begin with. They're the spectacle. You're bringing the crowd in. Everyone wants to see what that, that goes for. But this is a whole two days worth of every single lot being that star attraction of any normal auction. How do you curate it and decide what goes first? And what are the first three artworks? It's very, I mean, first of all, it's very difficult because, um, and it's more difficult if, you, if you're lucky enough to have a quality collection like this. So, um, you know, on one hand, it makes it more difficult. On the other hand, with so many great works, you can't be wrong. But in general, I would tell you that, you know, the, an evening sale gets more constructed because that's the more visible part. That's what the press likes to talk about and what the world likes to talk about. So um, the high value works. So, you know, I don't follow a certain formula. We, we normally stand together as a team and like, you know, lay it out with, with, with images on a computer or on, on, on the floor. Uh, but there's the, the thinking goes, look, I'm starting with, I tell you what the lot number one is. The lot number one will be the, cla um, the, the, the classic Picasso, the little four baiters, which is in the broader scheme of things, a fairly inexpensive work at six to $800,000, believe it or not, that's one of the more <laughs> inexpensive works uh, in the evening sale. But compared to like a couple of, you know, million dollar prices. Um, so I like to warm up in the beginning. So I like to have works that are, that are well-priced, highly desirable. I like to get more people involved. I'm a big believer that at auction is like, you know, the first bid is always the most crucial bid from my perspective. So the more people I can get to give a first bid, it kind of like breaks the ice. 
So I'd like to have a, a work that goes very well. I'm not always right, by the way, uh, but I, I, I try to do this and then lead up to, you know, to bigger value works. I also have a thing that I don't like, you know, if I have five top works in a sale here, I have more. I don't like them back to back. I like a little breather in between. So, uh, you know, so there's a psychology to it. You can't, because these auctions take two, three hours, you can't hold the tension. So I need to let people breathe. My people, uh, as much as the collectors, uh, you know, and, 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 and go for it that way. Do you try to art historically make sense? Yes, you do. Do you try to have things go into one another that have a relationship or have an aesthetic similarity. Yes, but it doesn't always work. Sometimes, sometimes there are harsh breaks in a sale, but it also, you know, it moves on. Do you and again, we're not curating. This is someone else's vision. You have to like, because people always say auction houses, curation and all of this. No, we are the market. I'm not, I'm not, you know, selling myself for something that I'm not. Uh, this is someone else's vision. This is someone else's curation. I'm just trying to get the best out of it for them. Got it. Do you have any superstitions before you go into a sale day? Is there anything you have to eat or drink or you have to like <laughs> turn around three times and touch any your bum rituals? or anything? Is there any like rituals? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous before an auction. So when I'm not nervous, I'm getting more nervous. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't do, I don't do like, you know, I don't have a, like, I don't have a shot of vodka or something like that before <laughs> the auction, after the auction. But uh, no, there's, there, there's nothing I do the same because, you know, I work and not just me, but auction house people, you know, I work until the last minute. So until I walk into the auction room, and most of the time when I still walk into the auction room, I'm on the phone with clients, activating them, not activating them, telling them what I know, not telling them what I know. You know, so so there is no time, not much time for rituals. I can't, I can't, there's... But the, what, the what, what, must be like an outfit. Is there a lucky, a lucky pair of socks or something? Or do you, <laughs> what what, what no. is your uniform for these sounds? Well, just... I can tell you my, my, my head auctioneer, UC, uh, UC wears the same tie. Um, uh, so, ah. so people have their things. I don't. Sometimes I wear a tie. Sometimes I don't wear a tie. I, 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 really, I, really, don't, I, I really don't have it um, to, to do the same thing because I, expe I always want the next sale to be better. So I won't put on what I wore the last sale. Can I ask you the history of Christie's? For people listening, we, we hear Christie's, Sotheby's, Phillips, Bonhams. We hear about these auction houses. Where Did they all spring up at the same time? Where did they come from? Why do we have them? And what is the history of this? Because this, this Christie's dates back uh, a few hundred years as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so about three hundred years, the, the 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 revolutionary moment happened in London with Sotheby's and Christie's and Bonham. Like it all happened at the same times from a from a traditional perspective. I think it had to do with the time. Obviously, the trade of any good, therefore also art. But if you have to imagine, like auction houses didn't just let now you see the high end and it became very prestigious. Auction houses used to be just a trading place for everything. We're talking about Seurat's and Van Gogh's and, and, and Da Vinci's now, but um, the traditional auction house had a lot of furniture and a lot of like uh, tableware and a lot of like uh, musical instruments, all these categories. So it was just the time of the trade when this happened and, and both 
both both big auction houses that still remain, Christie's and Sotheby's, were established in London and, and starting doing this. Uh, the auction house traditionally, even still in the 20th century, was a supplier mainly for the trade. So the trade went to, even when I started going to auctions in the 80s, um, it was much more of a, you know, uh, we didn't, there was no big installation. Uh, many paintings were not frames, were just in racks. You needed to know what to look for. So it was a tool. It was a wholesale, basically, for, 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 for dealers that came in and picked out the right thing and found, you know, there was no internet, there was no research. So they found things that were wrongly assigned. It's much more difficult today. And what happened, there were always a couple of collectors that were smart and dipped into the auctions um, and, 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 and started their collections there. But now it's a market that focuses much more on the end user. I'm talking to you as the collector, not just to the trade and to the in-between person. So I need to give you all of the information. I need to, I need to set auction rooms up and auction exhibitions up. Uh, I put more effort into it than some, some, some museums do in terms of from a research perspective in terms of from a from an from an excitement from a performance perspective, uh, I rebuilt the the entire Rockefeller Center every time that I have a great auction in order to change the rooms for certain paintings and stuff like that. So it's, it's so so the auction business has changed, especially in the last 20, 30, 20, 30 years, enormously from a facilitator to activity and to trade to being one of the main sources, if not the main source, for the end-user collector. Now, anybody can go to a preview day. They're, they're welcome. It's like walking into a museum. Anybody can go in. Anyone can view online. And anybody can turn up on the live auction days. Is that is that a thing? Like people listening now, if they want to go along and just see the spectacle of an auction, that's something that they can take part in well that's a little trickier because for big we have a limited space so we have 500 place uh, seats in the room when they're filled they're filled and then i can't you know then i'm over capacity then i can't so truth be told that the live auction part for the big one the paul allen sale will be ticketed so you have to you don't have to pay for your tickets there's not like you don't pay more for the first row than for the 15th row <laughs> and you don't have to pay for it, but you have to request them and, uh, and you have to be pre-registered and stuff like that. But as you said, you can come anytime during the opening hours uh, um, and you don't have to, it's actually better than a museum because you, there's no even free donation that we accept from you to come in. So you come in for free. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and, uh, you know, that's the great thing. Uh, auction houses, sometimes especially big ones, and I remember this, are, like, are intimidating, but it's really you walk in, you see something that you don't get a chance to see, especially this time around. Um, every auction has a different spin, uh, but it's a, it, it should be a place that is welcome, welcomes everyone to just look at the art. Well, you can also view the 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 night of the two-day sales online so anybody can sign up to christies.com you can go on and then you can just watch from wherever you are in the world whatever time it is and you can see this sale happening and be part of history really absolutely yeah. 
Absolutely. And you can also discover new things. Like I, I've seen David Hockney paintings in here that I never knew existed, and I'm, I'm obsessed with them. There's quite a few of Hockney's which are amazing. And also that Francis Bacon um, triptych, the mm, three studies for studies. self-portrait, I'm obsessed with. It's so, mm-hmm. so, so, so good. And I was really surprised by Sam Francis as well, because... Um, a friend of mine collects his work on paper and I've, I've seen it over the years, but I didn't realize how extraordinary they are. The, the paintings are so good, the Sam Francis ones. You're absolutely right on, on the Sam Francis because Sam Francis was an artist that was in the in the 80s and 90s, like a, a constant in the high end of the art market. Uh, yeah. Then it got a little quieter, but um, Paul Allen bought these two great early works. You're absolutely right pointing them out. They're yeah, sleepers and they're beautiful, beautiful works and just like exactly what you want. So I'm actually very curious because this is a market that has been softer for the last couple of years. But these paintings are so good. You know, that's that's it. That's the little excitements that I have, like what happens to this market? Because, yeah. uh, you know, it, it's at the end of the day, the passion and the eye of the collector that decides like, oh, maybe that aesthetic is something to look at. Yeah, this sale could change you know, auction records. Did did Paul live with all this work? Because there's, there's so many. Did he have loads well, of houses everywhere? Of was them. it all? Is it, so not he had a lot in storage. He had store. He had multiple houses and multiple places, um, uh, as you can imagine. Um, and um, they they had art, but there was also extra art because he was really passionate about his collecting. So. Um, pieces came out. I don't know how often he wrote, rotated his works of art, but yes, if you're a passionate collector, you end up collecting and some of it goes into a warehouse for time. No, I know that. I know that exactly. And was <laughs> it a logistical nightmare bringing this all together or, or was he pretty meticulous with where everything was stored and how you were going to access everything? Incredibly meticulous, incredibly precise. Oh, his, wow. his, he and his company, um, and his foundation are an, an, an incredibly well-oiled machine. Um, and I am not surprised by that. Are you surprised by that? That like one of the, like one of these creators has like a, like a, a functioning office. Uh, if not him, I would be very frustrated to be honest. Um, but no, everything worked well. You know, logistics were very precise uh, the demands of the of the of the of the of the Paul Allen estate were very precise, uh, but it's good to work with precision. It's good to work clear. Um, you know, we had to do we had to certain things that that they brought up that 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 we encouraged. Is like you know, like most of the all of the paintings that are not that are that are under a certain size, like under forty inches, are under glass, which now unfortunately is a something and necessity. Um, but that was a requirement from the beginning, even before what we've heard in the last couple of weeks. Uh, but you know, so, so, so it was very meticulous. And if you have a partner that is meticulous, you need to be meticulous. And then, then, then you come up with a product that is hopefully as perfect as it can be. And actually, I, I studied myself at Christie's in London. Um, I did a history of art masters for a year. And part of our course was doing cataloging and also condition reports, um, which you'd actually get taught by um, specialists at Christie's in London, where they would show you how to analyze like the back of a painting. Mm. Like you have to like document every single I mark, every single sticker. Mm. Yeah. And I, I love the precision and the artistry in a way that goes behind the scenes into documenting every single artwork and 
just like every book they've ever been published in, you know, mm. every show they've ever been in, the kind of history, the romance of all of that for me is such a such a wonderful thing. And I think a, a lot of that behind the scenes stuff, it's it's such an incredible world um, in auction houses when you actually get to go into the storage <laughs> and, uh, what you know, what, while they're putting together the catalogs, just the research for every auction. It's just insane, the amount of detail. I think that's the best part, actually, Robert, if you ask me as a, as mm. a, as a, as, is the best way of experiencing if you really, if you're into art and you want to learn as much, the auction house gives you and exposure throughout the centuries, throughout the categories, so you can decide what you end up liking or not, or what you have, what you feel passionate about. And the auction house, much more, and that's the truth, much more than a museum where everything is much more organized and everything much is more separated. It's like, for me, and, and don't get this wrong, but I like to experience paintings and I like to touch paintings. I'm not touching the surface and not poking at it, but you know what I mean? Just like lifting a painting or, or just like you said, looking at the back and feeling very carefully the how the canvas felt that <clears throat> felt the same way to Monet is an experience that you don't normally get because in museums, you're not allowed to touch paintings. You're not allowed to touch anything. Um, so at an auction house, you have this, once you once you prove that you deserve and you know what you're doing to yeah. handle these things to live in intimacy with these things to take a tape measure out like you said robert to take a tape measure out and measure the back of a monet that's quite <laughs> exciting when you're into it you know if yeah. you're not into art it doesn't do anything to you but... <laughs> I was really curious as well, because um, auctions, what I quite like about them is that it's all quite transparent and you can kind of see what the estimates are. You can see what the resulting price is and it's all public. But in this auction, I, I'm imagining because the values are so high, um, there's a few things that are estimates on request. So the Paul Cezanne, um, which is La Montagne um, Saint-Victoire, and also the Botticelli, which I think is just an extraordinary work the madonna of the magnificent you can't see what 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 you know what people are going to be bidding what, what can you tell us what those might go i'll tell for? you i'll tell you if you won't <laughs> yes. tell anyone haha this is the uh, estimate <laughs> on request i'm requesting you're requesting yes, on you see this I, is estimate i have on to request, tell you yeah. i have to tell you yeah we're requesting <laughs> you ask yeah. me. so the botticelli is because you know the botticelli is such an unknown entity because botticellis don't come up like uh, God, very often amazing. Uh, and it's a very specific scene uh, and a beautiful painting, a beautiful tondo. Um, so we estimated this at 40 to $60 million. Wow. Um, the, uh, the Cezanne, you're pushing me because that's the most expensive of all of them. The Cezanne Mont Saint-Victoire, which is, you know, Cezanne is really the birth of the 20th century, true after mm. the Impressionism. And Mont Saint-Victoire is probably the most important subject that Cezanne painted and there's he painted this entire series and there's only there's only two this is one of them remaining in private hands all the other ones are in uh, museum uh, collections so we're starting this at a hundred million dollars so that's a big number yeah and actually, for everyone listening, go to the Christie's website, look up Lot 25, which is the Botticelli, and you can actually click on the reverse image. So you obviously see the beautiful painting, but you get to see the wooden, like the back part of the painting documented. It's so fascinating. Love How it. many stickers are on the robbers? It looks like there's loads of... You there's know, three. Three <laughs> stickers. 
yeah it's really cool i love the romance of the stickers because it's always Same. like you know you get an idea of where the artist traveled you know where this work has been around the world in what you, year you've got a work was shown in a different museum we bonded over that because you've got a tracy emin that was in when she was nominated for the turner prize you have a drawing that was in a turner That's prize right. show oh, wow. and there's a sticker yeah. on the yeah, back that watercolor. says the tate does it tate yeah. britain or does it say the height yeah. or is it south bank center tate yeah britain. i think it just says tate yeah and yeah, and it also Tracy. has um, Jay Jopling stickers before he was White Cube. So it's got like really early kind of different stickers and it Man, toured all around the world. Well, actually, the history, it's great. Yeah. I love it's it. Proper geek, proper geek territory that. And we get like really like, oh my God, oh my God, look at this sticker. It's really, <laughs> <laughs> it's really exciting. Um, well, Alex, we're going to go on to our final questions now, but this has been really uh, revealing and excellent and fascinating. And I'm sure for a lot of people who are kind of, in awe of auction houses of what they actually are or do you've you've given us the inner machinations and it's been uh, fantastic so thank you very much um can i ask you one question before we oh, move yeah. on russ can i quickly just ask one thing is there like um a small number of collectors who might try and buy like quite a few of these works like would do you reckon that would happen where like there might be a collection that's missing so many things that they could actually just buy lo lots of this collection in theory yes in theory, wow. yes, uh, which would be very exciting. But, you know, it's, it's even, even for very wealthy people, which you have to be in order to go shopping <laughs> in the sale, let's call it this way, um, you do uh, at, these, at these levels. And the, these paintings, when you stand in front of it, when you want to experience art, they're quite intense. You're going to have a stronger feeling about one painting than the other, even though you're missing two. So unless you're really on a shopping spree, you're going to, I think, I, I think it's very hard to focus on multiple things with the same amount of passion. But again, I'm right. not stopping anyone who wants to buy five, <laughs> ten, or all of the paintings. I congratulate you. Oh, that'd be so cool. I, I went to a sale <laughs> once for Picasso ceramics years ago, and it was a room. There's probably about sixty people in the room, and I was really. This is at a time when Picasso ceramics still expensive, but you could pick things up for a, a thousand pounds sometimes if you were lucky. But there was this woman who was sat there, and every single lot that come up, she just put her hand in the air and she just bid on absolutely everything, and everyone was bidding against her. But easier at this level. Went, <laughs> everyone, and everyone just went, "What's the point?" But then, then she was getting like bargains because everyone was like, I can't, what's the point in bidding against her? She's just going to keep, and she bought the whole show. She bought the whole, I'm sure she was the a whole sale. I'm sure she was That's a dealer. Hilarious. Well, oh, people gave up because they were like, yeah, what's people the just point? like, what's the, just just sort of go, is she going to bid on this one? I want this one. I know she's bidding. What's the point? And she was just going, she was talking to her friend as well. She's kind of giggling and gossiping and just like raising her hand <laughs> up and down, not even thinking about it. It was really fascinating and incredibly frustrating at the same time. Well, I, I wish this was happen in the Paul Allen sale, but I don't <laughs> think someone's <laughs> going to sit there and bid on everything. Be a hell of a lot. I haven't met them yet. Yes. <laughs> oh um, so if you were going to, one of the questions we ask is if you could do an art heist, you could steal any work of art in the world for yourself, what would it be and why? But I would like to streamline that to this <laughs> actual sale. Is there one work in this sale that for you, you personally would absolutely kill to live with? Yes, it is this. It is for me personally. It is the Manet from eighteen seventy six, which is the mm -hmm. scene in Venice with that boat. Um, because I have, for me, this is the beginning of everything that I care about. Because it's, it's creating a landscape, creating an emotion, creating a feeling with the most, the fewest brushstroke available, and just creating this 
with like a with an with a levity and an ease to create an atmosphere on a water to create this feeling of Venice. That's the one that gets me going. But honestly, anything that I could grab from Paul Allen, I would be very happy with. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the other question we ask every guest is, what is your favorite color? Which, looking at this collection, it's one of the most colorful art collections I've ever seen. So it's quite apt. That is such an interesting question. Like, nobody has asked me for a long time what my favorite color <laughs> since is. Since you were a child. It's, since I'm a child. I was like, you know, it, it's... We are big kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's tricky because as a child, I would have answered as purple because my soccer club in Austria, Vienna, was uh, at purple as the color. So that's what my oh. favorite color was. But I think now that I'm grown up and I think about it, it's actually blue. Okay. All right. Um, um, do you know why blue? Not because of Chelsea. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, uh, no, but I think it's a color of, I think it's a color of hope. Uh, I think um, blues can play very, like a light blue and a dark blue is still a blue, although that doesn't happen always with all the other colors because a red turns into orange or into some other color. A blue always stays the blue, but has a very different emotive experience in a lighter version than in a darker version. Maybe mm. that's the reason. That's the first for that. I like that. You're right. Mm. Very good. What we is... normally get, oh, it's the color of the sky. sky. Or, <laughs> oh, oh it reminds me of my eyes my or eyes something, really you know, not mine, blue. obviously, because I've got brown eyes. But yeah. yeah. What is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to your career, your job? Follow your passion and give everything you got. Love that. And do you do that? Is that, is that something you live by? Yes. <laughs> yes it does Very exclamation mark yes very clear and passionate we love it oh it's um, so cool well yeah so this, so this sale is going to be on the 9th and 10th of november over two days um again go to christies.com and check everything out and any other information or exciting things that we should know about this well, sale? if you're in new york go to the sale yeah. and you know the previews and actually see Come it to the previews. you can go yeah, for yeah. free you're going to see some of the most extraordinary art and you might never see it in again. this collection yeah. you know what i found really fascinating as well this isn't the whole of his collection this is like a huge part of it but apparently there's still 500 million pounds worth or dollars worth i think it's dollars worth of art left in the collection so maybe that will appear at some point it's just unbelievable there's there's there, there's more i don't want to put i i I couldn't put a number on it, quite honestly, but there's obviously yeah. more. But um, so cool. this, 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 I'm very happy with what's what's here for now, and what happens with the rest, we don't know because there's a family, you know, you don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations on securing this so sale, much. and Thank you. also, I'm so excited to see the record-breaking figures because I'm sure it will be a record-breaking sale. It just seems like some of the greatest works I've ever seen at auction, really. And, um, and also, well done for Tracy and for all the women artists. I know Christie's are working really hard, at, like, you know, leveling that out. I know it will take a long time, probably, but it is happening. And it's, it's happening. so thrilling to see, like, Georgia O'Keeffe's prices in this auction. And, like, you know, it's millions and millions now for all these artists, like Agnes Martin. And, um, yeah, it's so, so important and so brilliant to see that in our lifetime. Thank you. So for everyone listening, please go to uh, TalkArt and we will be posting images of what we're talking about today. Go to Christie's.com and look for the Paul G. Allen collection, which and is... And also Christie's is on Instagram. 
Oh, Chris and Liz again. Yep, and this is visionary Paul G. Allen Sale. Uh, as Rob said, he was at the beginning. He described himself as a visionary. Him and Paul <laughs> Allen share that kinship. And um, yeah, we will be back next time. But thank you very much, Alex. Thank you, Christie's. Yeah. So you can go to at Christie's Inc. on um, Instagram. And congratulations to Christie's because they just got one million followers recently, Woo-woo. which is a big achievement. Yay. We'll be back very soon. Thanks Bye. for listening. Bye, Alex. Bye. Hey, bye, guys. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening.